Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. This is Charles L. Sawyers, MD, of the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, speaking at the Yale School of Medicine's Bicentennial Symposium, Biomedicine in the New Century, on April 29, 2011. Thank you very much. It gives me great pleasure to introduce our next speaker uh, to the Bicentennial Symposium. Uh, Dr. Charles Sawyers is the chair, the inaugural chair, of the Human Oncology and Pathogenesis Program at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. He's a Howard Hughes investigator, and he's the Kravis chair uh, at Memorial Sloan Kettering. Dr. Uh, Sawyers was born in Nashville, attended Princeton, the only flaw in his, uh, his CV to date. Uh, following that, uh, went to Johns Hopkins for medical school, UCSF for his training, uh, and then eventually went to UCLA where he worked with Owen Witte and became interested in kinases and in targeted therapies. Um, he is, as mentioned now, a Howard Hughes investigator. He's won the Lasker Award and also won the Karnofsky Award uh, from ASCO. Dr. Sawyers is the embodiment of what it means to be a successful translational researcher, someone who has taken the observations and findings from his laboratory and applied it to a real and important clinical problem. When you think about the disease chronic myelogenous leukemia before the work of, of Charles Sawyers and Brian Drucker, uh, CML was a disease where people lived three, five years. If you had an allogeneic match, you might have a chance of, uh, of having long-term survival, but the vast majority of patients didn't have an allogeneic match until their work showed um, that the uh, BCR ABLE and the ABLE kinase could be inhibited by the drug imatinib. And Charles's work to define these pathways and mechanisms have had an, an enormous impact on human disease. Great pleasure to introduce Dr. Charles Sawyers. Well, thank you, Tom, and uh, thank all of you for uh, coming back after such a lovely Friday afternoon. Um, it's really a great honor to be included in this lineup. Um, we're all, um, you know, reading either in the newspaper or in the journals about all the exciting new targeted cancer therapies. And what I want to do in uh, my uh, time is not debunk that excitement, but tell you um, the other side of the story, which is, of course, drug resistance. This is a common theme uh, with any cancer drug, and it's, a, it's an increasingly common theme with the targeted therapies. The good news I hope that you'll take from my talk is that we have a much better mechanistic understanding of how these therapies work, when, at least we should, when we put them into the clinic, um, and therefore we have some clues as to why they might stop working, and I'm going to tell you three uh, vignettes uh, in three different diseases about the approach we're taking to address this. I have one disclosure. Um, the second story I'm going to tell is going to involve a drug called MDV3100 that's in clinical development, and uh, I was a co-inventor, and I own stock in the company. Um, but what I'm telling you is going to all be true. <laughs> um, the <laughs> So here are the three examples. I'm going to start with chronic myeloid leukemia, then prostate cancer, then lung cancer, which is something I'm a little reluctant to speak about in front of Tom because he's the expert. But I'm going to tell you a, a, a recent story that, uh, that I think you'll find interesting. So as Tom said, you know, Gleevec um, has really transformed the treatment of chronic myeloid leukemia. Um, but there is this problem of resistance. Um, as you know, the Philadelphia chromosome is the driving uh, lesion in chronic myeloid leukemia, and it 
produces this constitutive kinase, the BCR-ABL fusion. It took 40 years uh, to get to this first targeted therapy, uh, but um, as you know, the, the pace of from going from discovery of a fusion kinase or a mutated kinase to a small molecule inhibitor is speeding up uh, incredibly fast. Um, and uh, there are many examples that are ongoing uh, uh, that you're very familiar with in lung cancer and, 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 uh, and um, uh, melanoma very recently. The same, um, I wanted to point out the date uh, of this paper, uh, April 5th, 2001. Um, at the time that paper was published, we already had a lead on what was going on in the patients who relapsed. Initially, uh, relapse was occurring in patients with blast crisis phase of CML, but it also occurs uh, in patients in early stage disease, but um, not in everyone. And I, as, as I think most of you know, the, the, um, the discovery was that the mutations, the, the resistance is caused by second site mutations in the kinase. And I saw this as an incredibly good fortune you know, mechanism because it told us exactly who the culprit was and how to go at the, uh, finding a second drug. But this was the uh, press, you know, we had a press release which sort of covered it in that angle, but this is the editorial that the Wall Street Journal wrote. Um, what I want to tell you now is uh, uh, how we um, use that information to think uh, about finding a second drug um, and the, I think, quite successful outcome that that's led to. You know, all of the work that I'm going to describe for you is done by outstanding physician scientists who've trained in my lab, and I just want to acknowledge each of them as I go. So this is Neil Shaw, who uh, did the work I'm about to show you, and I'm very proud, has just been promoted to associate professor at UCSF. What Neil did, um, together with Mercedes Gore, uh, when we were seeing patients uh, acquire resistance to Gleevec, was sequence the BCR-ABL uh, kinase domain uh, from samples that we obtained in the clinic. We started doing that because we had um, looked biochemically uh, at the cells first to ask the question, is, uh, when, when Gleevec is on board, the patients are taking the drug every day, when we first start therapy, we could show that BCR-ABL kinase activity was inhibited using various uh, assays of kinase activity in the cells, and now when they're relapsing, the main question was, is it inhibited and there's some other mechanism of resistance, or is, it, or is kinase activity restored? Kinase activity was restored in essentially every sample we looked at, and therefore we jumped on the possibility that something must be different about BCR-ABL. And I think, as many of you know, the first thing we found was this mutation here, um, which has uh, become a famous uh, example of, uh, of, of a gen generalizable phenomenon called gatekeeper mutations. They're deep in the ATP binding pocket, as I'll show you on a structural slide, and they generally form hydrogen bonds with a lot of the ATP competitive inhibitors of many different kinases. And um, the, the list continues to grow of examples of patients with different diseases who develop resistance to the appropriate kinase inhibitor due to mutation of this site. If that were just the only problem uh, or only mechanism of resistance, you could envision perhaps making a second drug that could cover that substitution and therefore coming at the disease with a two-drug cocktail. But as Neil dug deeper and sequenced more and more patients, the, um, the problem began to grow in its complexity, and, and now we know of at least 50 different um, amino acid substitutions that are associated with Gleevec resistance, and we know in every single case, if you re-engineer the mutation into a model system, it confers varying degrees of resistance to the compound in, in in vitro assays. So at this point, um, I was fortunate enough to link up with John Curian, a structural biologist uh, at Berkeley, uh, 
who had just solved the first crystal structure of Abel bound to Gleevec. And this is a, a picture of that. Here's Gleevec is the drug in gold, um, and here's the Abel kinase domain in gray. And what I've pointed out is a couple of interesting regions. Each of the colored uh, residues or balls is a residue where a mutation has occurred. So this is the T315I mutation that forms a hydrogen bond with the drug. And the substitution there create, puts a bulky isoleucine and therefore causes resistance through steric hindrance. But when you start to look at this pattern and you see mutations way over here in the activation loop and in the phosphate binding loop, and it was not at all clear how they could be causing resistance. So in puzzling at, over this uh, structure with John's group and modeling in each of the uh, different new uh, amino acids and, and, and looking at predicted effects on the structure, we came up with the following uh, proposal. And I'm just going to turn this uh, for you, and I hope you can appreciate that this part of the activation loop um, is it, you should envision it coming out of the board at you and the drug, this part of the drug running behind it. So that was an, a, an important insight when John solved this structure because it shows that the kinase is in the, what's called the closed conformation when, uh, when the drug is bound. And the prediction is that uh, because of this um, portion of the molecules is that the, the Gleevec shouldn't be able to bind the open conformation. And when we did the modeling studies, the prediction was that um, the substitutions in general favored an active or open conformation of the molecule. And therefore, we proposed that resistance was caused by the inability of the enzyme to achieve this closed shape and therefore bind the drug. A prediction from that would be that a second compound, which was agnostic about the shape of the, or the position of the activation loop and could bind in the open conformation, might be effective against some of these mutants. So I actually literally uh, proposed that at an AACR meeting, a, a cancer research meeting, you know, now many years ago. And I got a call a week, a week later from scientists at Bristol-Myers Squibb. And they said, we think we might have a compound that has those properties that we'd like to send you. And that compound turned out to be the drug desatinib. At the time, they had optimized this uh, to be an inhibitor of the T-cell kinase LCK. And then in doing a specificity profile, noticed that it also was a potent inhibitor of ABLE. The reason that was an important clue is because the shape uh, of ABLE uh, and SARC family kinases, of which LCK is a member, are, are very different in the closed conformation, but very similar in the open conformation. So we put two and two together. We said, well, maybe desatinib is binding the open conformation. At the time of that discussion and subsequent experiments, we didn't have this structure, but this is a structure that BMS uh, solved. And you can see that it's, here's the compound binding in the ATP binding site, here's the phosphate binding loop, and here's the activation loop. And just to show you in an animation the difference in binding between desatinib and Gleevec, you can see now the activation loop is closed, and that's the position in which Gleevec combined. So they're binding the same site, but in different conformational re uh, requirements, and therefore uh, should potentially have different activity profiles. So indeed, Neil found that that was the case. This is a series of uh, different mutations in BCR-ABLE that cause resistance to Gleevec in patients. He engineered their, them into a model system and then exposed those cells to different concentrations of desatinib. And you can see all of these uh, colored lines here are examples of sensitivity to desatinib but resistance to imatinib or Gleevec. The one exception is that gatekeeper mutant T315I, um, which is resistant to both compounds and remains sort of the, uh, the bugaboo of the field um, there are, are some early stage compounds that are showing some promise, uh, but we don't yet have a clinical drug uh, for this particular mutant.
this data led uh, Bristol-Myers Squibb to agree to move forward with a clinical trial, which was done, um, uh, led by myself uh, and uh, Moshi Talpaz when he was at MD Anderson. That trial um, uh, was, uh, was uh, the drug was tested in patients with chronic myeloid leukemia who had failed imatinib, um, and the response rate was extremely promising, uh, uh, you know, in the order of uh, you know, 50, 60 percent in the phase one trial. Um, and we genotyped the patients at study entry for resistance mutations, and the summary of that is shown on this cartoon where you see the map of the kinase domain, and each of the different colors, the, either green or blue, represents a patient on the trial had that genotype at study entry and responded either by a complete or a hematologic response or a complete cytogenetic response. And then the only uh, exception to response uh, was the T patients who had the T315I allele, and they uniformly were resistant. Um, so based on a follow-up uh, series of phase two studies, the drug was approved, now just to keep track of the dates, in 2006, um, just five years after the description uh, of the resistance mechanism. So I hope in that story to present to you the, uh, you know, two things. Number one, an, a detailed understanding of the target and the drug and the interaction thereof uh, can lead you quickly to decipher mechanisms of resistance, and then you, at least with kinases, you can react very quickly with second-generation compounds. Where we stand today is that imatinib continues to remain frontline therapy. Um, uh, it, has, it was approved exactly 10 years ago, um, and these are the response rates that are, are, are holding up. Um, but patients need to stay on Gleevec uh, essentially continuously, otherwise there's a significant risk of relapse if they stop the drug. Desatinib, as I said, and a second compound uh, called nilotinib were approved as second-line therapy. Last year, uh, at about this time, uh, uh, the results of an upfront trial comparing imatinib to desatinib or imatinib to nilotinib were, were published uh, in newly diagnosed patients, and in both studies, the second-generation compounds were found to be superior to imatinib at one year of follow-up. Now, superior in this disease, uh, we're starting to, you know, parse uh, really good results between three different compounds, but this is defined as greater overall response rate at one year, a greater cytogenetic remission rate, greater molecular re remission rate, and reduced time uh, to relapse. Um, and as I said, the sort of the, 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 the part that's left uh, unanswered is having a compound that um, is clinically uh, approved that would hit this last mutant. And one scenario I can envision in the future is a doublet uh, of, of two inhibitors, one being this compound with either one of these other two second-generation compounds as being a way to, in a, in a sense, shut off all uh, escape routes um, through at least BCR-able uh, mutation. So the second story uh, is, involves a completely different cancer, and that's prostate cancer. But it shares this theme of, uh, of understanding a targeted therapy at a certain level uh, and then trying to use that information to uh, decipher uh, the causes of resistance. So as you know, um, prostate cancer, when it's not cured by primary surgery or radiation, uh, has been treated you know, for decades with hormone therapy. The, the, there's two flavors of treatment that are both used, often in combination. There are drugs such as uh, Lupron is the leading LHRH agonist uh, that lower serum testosterone um, and therefore cause uh, uh, clinical response by sort of removing the fuel uh, uh, for the androgen receptor very effective therapy. And there are also a series of compounds that are approved as 
competitive antagonists for the androgen receptor. Uh, they, they bind the ligand binding domain and displace testosterone or dihydrotestosterone. The two leading drugs are bicalutamide and, uh, and flutamide. Now, uh, both are very effective, um, but all three of these compounds, uh, the rule is that patients will respond for a period of time and then develop resistance. Now, interestingly, the two uh, antiandrogens are well known to have uh, mixed properties as antagonists as well as agonists. Um, one of the best uh, demonstrations of that is a clinical phenomenon called antiandrogen withdrawal syndrome, and I'll illustrate this on this simple cartoon. So this is just meant to depict the typical course of a patient with metastatic prostate cancer whose disease burden is rising in the clinic usually monitored by a serum prostate-specific antigen level in the blood. Uh, the patient undergoes first round of hormone therapy, dramatic response, 90% or higher of all patients. Period of time goes by, this, this varies depending on the stage of the disease at which the hormone therapy is started, but typically it can be as long as, you know, three, four years or, or perhaps even longer if, it's, uh, if the disease is caught very early. But inevitably, PSA will rise and metastatic disease will return. Uh, and um, if a patient is on flutamide or bicalutamide, you're taught uh, in the, in the uh, medical oncology clinic uh, to stop the drug in such a patient, but not start something new right away, wait a little bit of time, and um, a certain fraction of patients, roughly 20, 30%, will actually respond, have some clinical benefit to discontinuing the antiandrogen, so formal proof that, they can, that something is happening in the tumor cells that causes the, the cell to reinterpret this agonist, antagonist as an agonist. But that is a, a, just a short-term benefit and the disease progresses. So um, we were very interested in trying to understand what the mechanism of this recurrence is. And the approach we took this time was to um, examine a series of uh, xenograft models that grow in this situation here by um, by implanting tumors into intact male mice, then castrating the mice, there's a period of time in which the tumor either growth arrests or regresses, and then regrows as this androgen-independent or hormone-refractory stage, as, as it has often been termed. So in this case, Derek Wellsby, an MD-PhD student in my lab uh, when I was at UCLA, took on this challenge uh, together with a postdoctoral fellow named Charlie Chen. So I'm not going to show you that primary data, um, but just summarize the key findings and then go to the next, to, to what we did in reaction to that. So what Derek found when he compared expression profiles from the, those two halves of that uh, conundrum, the hormone-sensitive versus the castrate-resistant phase of these isogenic xenografts, was that the androgen receptor message and protein was consistently overexpressed in the late-stage disease. Um, so this was an interesting correlation. It's been subsequently shown in patients, although we don't have examples of matched pair sets from the same patient. Patients who have castrate-resistant disease tend to have higher steady-state levels of the androgen receptor than patients at diagnosis. What Derek then did was uh, do the necessary and sufficient experiments of forcing androgen receptor overexpression in the castration-sensitive uh, model, and that was sufficient as a single step to cause resistance. Uh, and he also knocks down the receptor by RNA interference in castrate-resistant lines, and that was able to restore sensitivity. Uh, but perhaps the most surprising finding was that um, this simple maneuver of overexpressing the receptor about three to five-fold uh, over endogenous, which is what we see in patients as well, uh, would cause a cell that was responsive uh, to bicalutamide, meaning uh, responded, interpreted as an antagonist, to now see it as an agonist. 
So something is changing in the balance of the receptor levels, the co-activators and co-repressors that are, are, are causing uh, this change. We're still working on trying to figure out exactly what the molecular details are. But in light of this, um, it became clear to me and to Derek and Charlie that second-generation antiandrogens could be a potential solution to castrate-resistant prostate cancer. So we put this forward to, uh, in discussions with several pharmaceutical companies who were not um, enamored by the idea, and I think in retrospect, um, because the, the, the parlance of, of uh, thinking about this phase of the disease was that it was androgen-independent. In fact, it went by the term androgen-independent uh, prostate cancer. So despite this you know, nice nature medicine paper, that wasn't enough to convince anyone to launch a drug development program. So I had been uh, fortunate at UCLA to meet uh, a very uh, um, accomplished uh, synthetic chemist named Mike Jung. Um, and he and I uh, uh, agreed after some ser series of discussions to give this a shot. So we had uh, a cell-based assay in which to screen compounds. That was cells in which we'd engineered the androgen receptor at these higher levels. The current drugs were resistant, uh, and the, the, the idea was very simple. Are there any small molecules we could find that would now restore uh, sensitivity, would interfere with androgen re receptor function in that context? The approach that worked um, was actually uh, suggested by Mike and was to take advantage of a lot of old literature on small molecule chemistry and binding to different um, hormone receptors. And in an old Rosselli cloth patent, he found this structure um, which goes by this name, which caught his attention because of this binding affinity that was published in the patent. Um, and that caught his attention because this is two orders of magnitude higher affinity than bicalutamide. So the simp you know, of course we wondered, well, why has this gone nowhere? Well, we made the compound and it's a potent agonist. But what um, his postdoc, Samadhi Uk, did was start to make derivatives of different parts of this molecule and generate an SAR uh, of activity uh, of compounds versus activity in our assay. So making, you know, 10 or 12 compounds at a time, going over to our lab, screening them, looking at the results, and having group meetings. Over a series of about 18 months, we came up with this set of rules, which is that this part of, mo of the mo molecule cannot be altered uh, or else we kill all activity. But as we build bulky groups into this part of the molecule, we start to build in antagonism. We don't have a structure of this compound with the androgen receptor yet. Uh, we've struggled. Um, but with modeling studies, um, it looks like what's happening is something that's very consistent with uh, a knowledge from the estrogen receptor field, and that is that these bulky groups interfere with the ability of helix-12 to fold on top of the ligand binding uh, site when engaged with the compound, as it normally does with agonists and the native hormone. So a compound from this series uh, is now called MDV3100. Um, uh, and uh, we called it RD162. Um, the new name is because it's been licensed to this company, Medivation, that I mentioned in the disclosure. They license it based on this kind of data. So we took this compound um, and treated mice uh, in which we had in, uh, injected prostate cancer cells that were engineered to express this higher level of the androgen receptor, and those tumors now grow and castrate mice very vigorously. And then we treated them with either vehicle, bicalutamide, or the new compound. And I'm showing you the data here in the form of a waterfall plot where each one of these bars is a, a mouse whose tumor is either growing if it goes below zero or shrinking if it goes below zero. Um, and this is, would be complete you know, regression of, uh, of uh, 
100% uh, decrease from baseline. So I think you can see the message, the compound is extremely active in this um, model, uh, much more active than bicalutamide. And this was enough to convince uh, Medivation to take this compound and put it forth into a, a phase one clinical trial. And I'll tell you about that in a second, but in the meantime, we were, went back to understand why is it working so much better? Is it just because of the increase in binding affinity? Or are there other properties? So I just want to tell you that I think the answer is because there are other properties, and I'll just show you to you in this cartoon. So this is the androgen receptor, which, as you know, when it's unligated, is in the cytoplasm, uh, bound to heat shock proteins such as HSP90. When, um, when ligand binds, androgen in this case, you undergo, the receptor undergoes a conformational change, translocates to the nucleus, binds to DNA at target sites, and assembles an active transcription complex. Interestingly, when bicalutamide binds, it actually, the, the, the sort of life cycle of the receptor is not that different. Still undergoes the conformational change, translocates to the nucleus, binds uh, almost all of the same number of target sites as we've now shown, shown by ChIP-seq. Um, but um, is believed to exert its antagonistic properties by assembling a complex that's not optimal, including the recruitment of co-repressors such as NCOR and SMART. So we asked in our new compound, uh, you know, what's, how, what are the steps here? And what we find is that it is designed, uh, as I said, to bind exactly the same site, so it's displacing androgen. Um, a conformational change, which we can't, you know, get our hands on uh, structurally yet, occurs. But only about 20% of the pool of the androgen receptor makes it across to the nucleus. And of that pool that gets there, we can find no evidence that any of it can bind DNA at all, um, most recently by ChIP-seq experiments. So um, I think this is a fundamentally different effect on the receptor that I suspect may explain its activity. In the meantime, um, Howard Shear, a colleague at Sloan Kettering who runs the GU Oncology Group, um, took the, became the principal investigator of the phase one clinical trial of the compound. So as in any first in human study, it was a dose escalation, three patients per cohort, um, and the test population was castrate-resistant prostate cancer, so men who failed all hormonal therapies. Um, some men were eligible for chemotherapy, um, and as you'll see, uh, both groups of men were tested. Um, the uh, first three patients uh, were treated with a dose that we suspected would be far too low to have any therapeutic effect, um, but almost miraculously, all three men had a subtle decline in the serum PSA level within the first 28 days. There were no side effects, so the next dose was tested. That was 60 milligrams, and again, all three uh, patients at that cohort had declines in serum PSA. So the company made a very drastic change in the protocol, and that was to rapidly accrue 24 additional patients to each dose level once they had acquired safety on the first three. And of those 24, 12 were um, chemo-naive, meaning they hadn't been treated with standard therapy, which is uh, taxatier, and 12 who actually failed that as well. Um, so this phase one study, which was meant to enroll 30 to 40 patients, ended up accruing 140 over about a year and a half. And the results of that in terms of PSA response are shown here. So again, this is a waterfall plot, and it's sort of divided into two halves, depending on whether it's the group that was chemotherapy naive versus post-chemotherapy. This distinction is important in thinking about how to design the next clinical trial. But the, the exciting result is that in both groups, there's dramatic uh, drops in serum PSA. The GU oncology community uses a, a cutoff of 
of a sustained drop of greater than 50% for 12 weeks as being something important, uh, not necessarily uh, proof that your drug's going to improve survival, but something you know, very exciting. Uh, and that's what we were seeing in both of these cohorts, roughly 50% complete response rate, or, you know, or PSA response rate. We also saw evidence of benefit in terms of uh, other measures, such as radiographic changes. I won't go through the details other than show you that there was a, there, there was shrinkage of soft tissue disease and stabilization of bone scans that, is, that are also considered important milestones. So what's happening now is that the drug is in a phase three registration trial in this post-chemotherapy population being compared to best supportive care and it's expected to read out sometime at the end of this year. Some of you may know there's another drug that goes by the name abiraterone, which lowers serum testosterone levels, not hitting the androgen receptor, um, by, um, by blocking residual testosterone production uh, by the adrenal gland. That drug was actually approved, I think, yesterday by the FDA um, for um, showing activity in exactly the same patient population. The data, this kind of data on abiraterone are very similar to, uh, to, to, um, to what I've shown you here. So, the hope, of course, is that this drug will also show activity, and perhaps the two together, you know, shutting off more ligand production and blocking the receptor more potently might also be an interesting combination. But what I now want to do is point out this uh, group of patients, which um, are patients who clearly flat out do not benefit at all from the compound. And if I drew this circle a little bigger, you would see that there are patients who have this sort of ho-hum, modest drop in serum PSA levels. That tends to last only for about three to six months, and then the, those patients tend to progress. Um, so there's clearly a resistance problem now with this new drug, um, and we're actively working on that. I don't have the answer yet, but I want to show you some very recent work that's unpublished from some mouse models. Um, and this is the work of Brett Carver, who's a urologist in my group, um, who's, who operates two days a week and spends three days a week, or actually five days a week, a typical surgeon in the lab, uh, and I don't know if he ever goes home. but. Um, this um, is the, re so, so the, the question that we asked um, was one that, you know, we, we can't take a global look at these patients uh, currently. I mean, I'd love to get expression profiles or mutation analysis profiles on tissue from these patients, but for reasons that aren't really worth going into, it's very difficult to access tissue in this patient population, and we just don't have the opportunity now, uh, but hopefully we will in the future. So in the meantime, we're taking some guesses. So P10 is a guess. Um, why? Well, it's a common lesion. It does sort of, its frequency would match with the, with the frequency of resistance. And there's data from others in breast cancer. You know, breast cancers often have mutations in PIK3CA, the uh, PI3 kinase isoform. Um, and those patients sometimes, those mutations can sometimes mitigate the response to hormone therapy in breast cancer. So there's precedent for the PI3 kinase signaling pathway to, um, to perhaps play a role here. So what Brett did was test our drug in a conditional P10 knockout model. This is a well-studied model in the field. These mice develop early preneoplasia, and then they develop cancer by about six months of age. And we can follow this by doing MRI scans on the mice and you know, detect eligible subjects and then treat them on a, essentially a, a mouse clinical protocol. So we have um, two different mice, mouse models that we're, we looked at here in this uh, experiment. So this is a, a MIC transgenic model that I, I'll just, we just use sort of as a control. Um, and then here's the P10 model. And you can see the tumors in the MIC model shrink 80% or so over a five-week period of time, whereas the P10 
mice have a very modest response. This is, this is shrinkage, and, you know, the untreated mice, the tumors actually grow. Um, so it, it is a response, but it's not something we're uh, impressed with. Um, this shows that um, you know, one explanation might be that the drug's just not efficiently reaching the prostate cells in this tumor model. However, when we look at the expression of three different androgen receptor target genes in the prostates of these mice five days after we start treating, you can see this is, um, this is about 50-fold reduction in the expression of these genes. Of course, we can clearly hit those genes even harder in the MYC model, so maybe we can get greater potency um, with higher doses. But we also can see, and I hope you can tell, in the androgen receptor immunostic chemistry of these tumors, hopefully you can see this bright uh, staining here in the nuclei. This is the androgen receptor. In this uh, uh, panel here, from drug-treated -treat mice, the androgen receptor is not nearly as nuclear, so showing that the drug is having that effect that I mentioned of impairing uh, nuclear translocation. So this points to P10 as a potential resistance marker. It also raises an exciting new possibility, and that is if we use an inhibitor of the PI3 kinase pathway, which is upregulated in these mice, maybe we can um, you know, have a better treatment response than this. So we did that using a compound called BEZ235 that's an experimental compound that's in clinical development. Um, Novartis uh, is, is taking it forward. It is a, it's, a, it's not a pure PI3 kinase inhibitor. It hits mTOR, mTOR2 complex. It, it, it's an ATP competitive inhibitor of TOR, and it also hits PI3 kinase. In the doses we're giving, we can document inhibition of PI3 kinase signaling as measured with a phospho-AKT antibody, and also uh, inhibition of TOR signaling with this downstream readout of TOR activity. We can see that the proliferation of the cells uh, is impaired in the P10 model. It's, there's really no effect in the MYC model, interestingly, with a PI3 kinase inhibitor. Um, but we don't see much tumor shrinkage. That's shown here. So here's the control group. You can see the tumors do grow over this five-week period of time, but they only shrink about 20% at best with the PI3 kinase inhibitor. So why is this? Well, um, we uh, posited that perhaps the androgen receptor is now exerting this uh, survival signal that the, that the tumor uh, uh, you know, still has, and therefore we're not able to kill the cells. So we see a proliferation effect, uh, but not uh, a cell death effect that's substantial. So, to, so we decided to look at the androgen receptor uh, pathway in these animals after treatment with this drug. And to our surprise, what we found is that inhibition of the PI3 kinase pathway sort of paradoxically activates the androgen receptor. So the evidence for that uh, is probably best shown here. These are, this is the expression of three androgen receptor target genes in, at baseline, and this is five days after adding the PI3 kinase inhibitor, you see a big upregulation in expression of roughly 15 to 20-fold of some of the target genes. We can model this in cell lines using reporters, and different TOR inhibitors or AKT inhibitors all share this property of activating androgen receptor transcriptional activity and actually stabilizing the receptor um, when, we, when we inhibit this pathway. So this is um, obviously something that we don't want to be happening in prostate cancer cells. And uh, it's very reminiscent of uh, some observations that Neil Rosen, another colleague at Sloan Kettering, has made over the last couple of years. So many of you are probably familiar with this um, observation that inhibition of mTORC1 with rapamycin and analogs can paradoxically activate AKT and upstream, you know, part of the pathway by relieving negative feedback that's mediated through this uh, signal. Neil has more recently found um, 
that with an AKT inhibitor, there's a, another overlayer level to this feedback. Transcriptional control of certain receptor tyrosine kinases is disabled or activated when you um, add the AKT inhibitor. And paradoxically, you see more HER2, HER3 phosphorylation in breast cancer cells when you add an AKT inhibitor. So it turns out we are seeing exactly the same thing. We see HER2, HER3 activation in prostate cancer cells when we add this BEZ compound. Now, how does that explain how you can activate the androgen receptor? Well, several years ago, my group had actually, for other reasons, mapped a pathway between HER2, HER3, and androgen receptor. So we sort of come full circle now. The um, inhibition of this pathway uh, in these P10 null prostate cancers is activating the androgen receptor through these HER kinases. So of course that begs the question of, you know, in, in addition to, to elucidating, elucidating the molecular details of these feedback loops, just treat with both compounds at the same time. And now you can see this is now 100% shrinkage here. You can see we're getting dramatic tumor regressions when we use the combination of the antiandrogen and the PI3 kinase inhibitor, even in a P10 model and in xenograft models. Um, so um, the, the, the dissection of those feedback loops puts us towards the following model, and that is inhibition of one pathway, uh, the PI3 kinase pathway, paradoxically leads to activation of the other, the AR pathway, through these HER kinases. And what I won't show you for the sake of time is that we also find the reciprocal. When we inhibit the androgen receptor pathway in these tumors, we actually activate the AKT pathway through downregulation of a key phosphatase that regulates uh, AKT. So moving forward, um, uh, where can we go? Well, what I've shown you is that um, we think that P10 is a resistance marker for the MDB compound, and we very much want to ask that directly in the patients. We will get there, but we have to get more tissue. Um, in the meantime, uh, these two pathways are very interconnected, um, and um, the prediction is that the compounds in this, uh, uh, that hit this pathway, many of which are just starting to go into prostate cancer amongst many other cancer types, I think are very unlikely to cause clinical responses, at least in P10 negative cancers. And in fact, I think it's likely that they might cause PSA levels to rise rather than fall, which will lead to massive confusion in the early stages of the clinical de development of the compound. And so we're pushing very hard to get combination therapy uh, 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 tested as quickly as possible. These are all clinically viable compounds, um, and you know, we are working hard to convince the various companies uh, who, are, who are developing these drugs to work together on this. What I want to now finish in the last couple of minutes with is, um, is a, a lung cancer story. So um, I, I'm sure you've seen various versions of this pie chart, which is how the treat, how the uh, diagnosis of lung cancer as simply adenocarcinoma has dramatically changed just in the last five or six years to these different subtypes based on their molecular phenotype or driver mutation. And as you know, EGFR inhibitors such as erlotinib um, have really transformed uh, the field. Now, this is a waterfall plot from data generated at Sloan Kettering um, by um, Mark Chris and colleagues from, cl from clinical trials uh, several years ago. And I'm showing it to you just to make one point, and that is that what we call a response in, uh, in lung cancer is 30% uh, shrinkage of tumor by CAT scan. So everything below this dotted line is, is scored as a response, and these are all EGFR mutant patients. And um, the point I want to make is that most of these patients are not having complete regressions like this. Most are having partial responses, and there's clearly heterogeneity. So what is the explanation for this? Um, 
we hypothesize that um, you know, there, there other, there's nothing different in terms of the EGFR mutation itself that can explain all of this heterogeneity. Um, so we ask the question, perhaps there are genetic modifiers, other hits that are regulating how dependent or addicted the tumor is to the EGFR driver mutation. And because we, for all intents and purposes, we, we think we're getting good blood levels in all these patients. It's very unlikely that it's a, a, a pharmacokinetic or pharmacodynamic difference that's explaining this. So the strategy uh, we took uh, to address this question was uh, in collaboration with Greg Hannon at Cold Spring Harbor, who, as many of you know, has developed very powerful RNA screening technologies. So we asked the question, using a pooled library, um, can we find hairpins that would make erlotinib work better in a cell line? And this is the work of Trevor Bavona, uh, also an MD-PhD, uh, formerly at NYU, who's just completed his postdoc in my lab. And, is a, and works in the lung cancer uh, clinic at Sloan Kettering. So Trevor found this cell line um, called H1650, which caught my attention because it has the right genetic makeup. It should be very sensitive to erlotinib, but it's actually, and it is, you know, the cells undergo growth arrest, but they don't die. Uh, so compared to the spectrum of EGFR mutant lung cancer cell lines, this is relatively insensitive. So we thought that might be a good test case to now look for enhancers of erlotinib killing. So we used a, a library with the details here. Um, we, per, we, we used a pooled screening approach. We pulled out 36 uh, hairpins that were depleted in this system when we added erlotinib and, um, of course, looked at their names. And 18 out of the 36 could be connected in some way with NF-kappa B signaling. So this was really quite interesting because as many of you know, NF-kappa B is very uh, is implicated in many things, but survival signaling uh, in cancer. Uh, so the, the specific hairpins we got targeted these different components of the pathway. Um, I'm not going to go through all of the primary data. It was recently published in Nature about um, a month or so ago. Um, but I'm just going to show you data from one of them, which is critically important for the translational implications, and that is this kinase IKK beta because it's you know, presumably a druggable lesion. So this shows you in a xenograft assay how these tumors grow normally. This is how you know, relatively unresponsive to erlotinib they are. This shows you the effect of knocking down IKK beta in these tumors, and this shows you now the regressions we start to see when we add erlotinib. Um, so this is the reason we're, you know, we're excited about this uh, pathway, at least in this model. Now, um, what do we know about NF-kappa B signaling in patients. Um, I, I won't show you, but we could do the reciprocal experiment of take a, take a erlotinib-sensitive line and make it relatively resistant by activating NF-kappa B. So um, what we know now uh, is from this uh, series of samples that um, Rafael Rosell in Barcelona um, analyzed in collaboration with our group. He runs the Spanish Lung Cancer Oncology Group um, and uh, had collected a large series of patients on clinical trials across Spain who were all had EGFR mutations and all were treated with uh, erlotinib and biopsies were obtained uh, and survival uh, uh, data was available. So he looked at a couple of genes from our hit list and found that the level of expression of the inhibitor of iCAPA B, uh, uh, iCAPA B um, patients who had high levels of iCAPA B and therefore low NF-kappa B activity, presumably, um, had a much better outcome in progression-free survival as well as overall survival. And importantly, um, this effect, this prognostic effect in this one data set didn't transfer 
to a different group of EGFR lung cancer, uh, EGFR mutant lung cancer patients who were treated with chemotherapy that were available, data on, were available from Sloan Kettering in the days before allotinib. So this uh, sort of biomarker prediction here is specific to this drug and not generic uh, uh, for lung cancer. So the implications here are that NF-kappa B activation can promote resistance, uh, that the expression of this uh, uh, RNA level, which should predict for reduced activity of NF-kappa B, uh, is a, could be a biomarker of treatment response, and we'd obviously like to see this looked at in other data sets. But I think from the translational uh, angle, the question is, can we combine an EGFR inhibitor with an NF-kappa B pathway inhibitor, you know, type of inhibitor, you know, unknown at this point, um, to resp enhance response rates and perhaps extend treatment duration. So I've tried to hopefully show you how um, with targeted therapies, we know the enemy, we know how the enemy can outsmart us if we just look carefully, and that can very quickly lead us to solutions uh, to acquired resistance. Um, and I think I've mentioned everybody along the way, so I'll stop now and be happy to take questions. Thank you. Charles L. Sawyers, MD, was one of 15 illustrious scientists who delivered lectures to a capacity crowd at Yale School of Medicine at a symposium celebrating the school's bicentennial in April 2011.